Okay, hi everybody. Welcome back. I'm Holler co-founder Justin Canoe, tnholler.com, at the tnholler on Twitter, at the tnholler on Facebook. We're a progressive digital independent news site here in Tennessee trying to yell the truth about things that are going on, especially in Tennessee, but also throughout the country. Today, we're going to be joined by somebody who has been doing a lot of truth yelling in her own right. Former Border Patrol agent Jen Budd is here with us to share her very powerful story. Jen, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Justin? I heard you on Alyssa Milano's podcast. You told your story. It was an incredible story. I just saw that on Newsweek, something that you went through during your time as an agent. Maybe we can talk about some of that or whatever you're willing to share about that also. But I just want to say that I'm I'm sorry for what you went through. Uh, I know that you know, being a survivor of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and rape, really important stories to tell. And we're moving forward as a culture, and we can only do that by you telling your story. So thank you for doing that. Oh, I appreciate that. So let's start from the beginning. How does somebody decide to become a border patrol agent? I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, pretty close to Tennessee. My family favored the Democrats more. and We were a little more liberal, even though by today's standards, I wouldn't think that they're liberal. My education in law at Auburn and my own personal values and philosophy were always kind of more, I guess, to the liberal side than the conservative side. But my views in law enforcement, I would say, were more conservative. You know, like most people, whether we're right or left, most people are in the middle, I think. I didn't want to go to law school just yet. And I, uh, someone told me about the Border Patrol, and I had never heard of it. And so I joined. Did you know anybody else that had joined? No, I didn't know anybody else. You got to remember this was back in the early 90s. You know, I mean, immigration obviously has always been an important issue on the southern border, but it didn't affect me directly being a white woman and I don't have any Latina heritage. I didn't even take Spanish in, in high school. I took French. So so you didn't even have spring break Spanish to work with when you got started. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can you take me through signing up and training and, you know, what all goes into becoming a border patrol agent? It's a very close system. Nowadays, they use various companies to screen applicants applicants to make sure they meet the bare minimum. Who gets hired? That's ultimately decided by Border Patrol agents when you interview. They put you through scenarios of, you know, like a shooting scenario. They want to make sure that you're not wanting to shoot too fast, but willing to shoot if necessary. And then they assign you a class. I was in the 288th. I think now they're up over 1,050. And the training for me was four months after 9-11. George Bush dropped the academy training to under two months, if you can imagine that, obviously resulted in even more corruption and more rape culture and so forth. The Border Patrol has always had issues with corruption. It's really been aided in many ways by politicians shoving people through these academies without really doing background checks. Even when they do background checks, they're doing poor background checks and putting people in uniform and just sticking them on the border. Have things changed since 9-11? Has the culture changed? Was that an inflection point for the department? Yeah, I think it was. I think we could say that 9-11 is going to be something that we look back on and generations after us are going to look back on and go. That's when America changed drastically and went the other way. Not to say that the Border Patrol, like I said, didn't always have these issues, didn't have racist issues. It did. But after 9-11, under the guise of national security, were given much more authority. They're allowed to pursue, even if it ends up killing people uh, in car wrecks and stuff, just to ask somebody their citizenship. And that's happened many times where U.S. citizens and migrants have both been killed because of actions 
by Border Patrol agents. The vocabulary they used and the attitude towards migrants has changed. They refer to all migrants, whether they're asylum seekers, children, women, as prisoners when they have them in custody. I would say militaristic. They see them as the enemy and they see them as invading this country and they will use the terms invading this country as opposed to coming to seek asylum refugee status. I think that that's a very important distinction because I think that's what allows many agents today to look past their humanity of the people that they're meeting every day and it allows them to somehow be okay with children dying in their custody of the flu and the treatment that we have been seeing. So I think it's a very important distinction. Language certainly matters. After 9-11, a lot of that started based off of anti-immigrant hate groups like the Federation of Americans for Immigration Reform, FAIR. They invited the Union Border Patrol reps to their conventions and they would give them the propaganda and the statistics at best are misleading, worse or just outright false. Border Patrol union reps would go back to the stations and repeat them. And then they also put them on their website and, and told agents, this is the terminology you need to use. These are the stats you need to use. This is why you see people like former ICE Commissioner Tom Homan testified before Congress with false statistics all the time. Vocabulary and propaganda that is put out by anti-immigrant hate groups who are then asked to go testify before Congress. They also share everything with Stephen Miller and Donald Trump. That's why their vocabulary and terminology is the same. And then this is also the same thing that's coming out of the Border Patrol. So it seems like they all are of this one opinion but really, it is a coordinated, concerted effort to change the vocabulary and change Americans' perception and how we view migrants, not as asylum seekers, but labeling them all as criminals, even though they aren't. The white nationalist agenda that we've seen Stephen Miller is coordinating and certainly a part of, would you say that permeates all levels of this government? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you see it in the State Department, and they're all repeating each other's garbage. They've been able to take over a lot of government. And even, you know, if you look at FAIR's uh, website, they have put out every year kind of this wish list of what they want to see the administration do. And basically, Trump has just gone right on down that line. Now, it's not just Trump. They've been trying to get this done for a long time, but I don't understand why a union is allowed to be politicized. Never before Trump did they ever advocate for one nominee or another. Then I also think that going and spending time with anti-immigrant hate groups shouldn't be allowed. The union should be concerned with sick leave and pay and all that kind of stuff. Not not with, you know, uh, propaganda and, and hate groups. I'm looking at this fresh face picture of you joining the department. What was it like? What were the first days on the job like in the field? So I was assigned to Campo, California, and that's considered high desert 54 agents. And there were two other females there. They were away on assignment. And so I was pretty much by myself. I didn't have a bulletproof vest for the first year because they claimed that they couldn't get one. And the truth is they just didn't order it. Because I had been sexually assaulted, raped in the academy by a classmate, and they did nothing about it other than wanting me to file an equal employment opportunity complaint, which I refused to do because that would have stopped my employment. Instructors had called the station and notified the station agents who were all male that they needed to be 
wary of me and that they should fire me on my Spanish board. So after you graduate the academy, continuing Spanish exams and study and law, if they feel like you're not getting along, you're going to be a troublemaker like they thought I was, then they can justify firing you on your Spanish boards. I've seen individuals who spoke Spanish fluently, like some Puerto Rican agents who were fired because they used one Puerto Rican slang term in their exam or something. And then I've seen people that can barely speak a lick of Spanish pass. They're looking for people who will be compliant and do play by their rules. The good old boy network. When they graduate, the managers of the stations I cannot say that this is still true now, but I do know like in my day, they collect all the money. So the supervisors and so forth collect money to take the agents, the male agents down to party in Tijuana. They buy them prostitutes and drugs and alcohol. So that starts the corruption in the border patrol. So I was kind of always on my own. You always work alone. And I worked up in the mountains in the high brush and I hiked all day. And in my younger, more healthier days, you tracked people entering the United States by their footprints. And you never know if they're bringing in drugs or if they're migrants. Everyone thinks everybody crossing the border is either Central American or Mexican. And that's not necessarily true. They come from all over the world. But basically, you track them through the mountains for miles at a time until you apprehend them. You're doing this on your own? Yeah, all on my own. And I... <laughs> I used to, when I first started, I had a six shooter. I had a 357 Smith & Wesson. I was so thin back then from the academy. You just hiked until you found people. And then when you found them, you climbed to the highest mountain you could find and radio for help. My very first apprehension as a trainee was very confusing for me because it was a family. I had expected and been told that people were bringing in drugs and weapons and all sorts of things. And it was just a family, you know, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and some teenagers and a baby. So I found it very confusing, but that is the majority of the arrests that agents make out there. What can you tell me about the story that you told to Newsweek that just came out today about being raped at the training academy? I entered in June, of, the end of June of 95. You know, they kind of, they separated the men and women and they told the women that they had to talk to us about how to wear our hair and all this ridiculous stuff. But in reality, what they were doing is telling the men that the women didn't belong in the border patrol because we couldn't physically hack it, which is not true. That in order to get positions, we would falsely accuse instructors, fellow trainees of sexual assault. That night, so the very first night, what happened is there's a history of the way the women try to protect themselves is that the women in the classes ahead of you that are graduating before you that know the drill will come to your uh, living quarters and they tell you the truth. They tell you the truth to not leave your drinks alone. They tell you, because there's always a bar on campus, to not drink anything that somebody brings to you because it will be drugged. Bureau of Prisons was training at Glencoe at that time. And I've since talked to women where they were told, don't go near the Border Patrol agents living quarters. Don't accept any drinks from them. And they would say, why? And their instructors would say, because you'll be raped. They flat out said, if an instructor decides that he likes you and asks you to go out on a date or have sex and you don't, they'll they'll find some way to fail you on your physical training or they'll fail you on those subjective Spanish boards. Another issue is what they call the game of smiles. Women in the patrol as trainees have been drugged and taken to not only trainees living quarters, but instructors training quarters and physically forced under a table and forced to give the men oral stimulation and the first man who smiles has to drink. And usually when that happens, the women end up being gone by the next morning. But 
where do you go when the person assaulting you is a federal agent? Who do you tell? And they tell us, you know, you can't call the police because this is a federal academy and we prefer to handle this ourselves. Now, being the age I am, I'm 48 now, I, I would be like, the hell of that, you know. But at that time, I really needed the job. When you're first there, honestly, it seems just absurd. This can't be happening. You know, there's a large part of you as a woman who's kind of like, well, I'm just going to be careful and not let that happen to me. And that's a naive attitude. And that was my attitude as well. In the Border Patrol, the men have a saying, there's four different types of women in the Border Patrol. They're the lesbians. And at the time I wasn't out and I had longer hair, so I passed as straight. There are the women who are married to other agents and they're off limits. Bitches, they're the ones that won't deal with anybody. And then there's the ones, can I curse on here? Of course. Okay. They're the ones that they term in the Border Patrol as fuck bags. And what that means is that they pass them around from uh, agent to agent. Now, what that also means is that's also a survival technique that some women, not decided because it's decided for them. If this happens to you, you either file a EO and you get fired or you get harassed endlessly. Or like my classmate who has since passed, she had three children and an abusive husband back home and she really needed this job. And so she was going to do whatever she had to. And so she was forced to have an affair with my law instructor. So I think there's a variety of different techniques that women use to survive, depending on their own personal situations. But I think there's also just this feeling like this can't be institutionalized. This can't be systemic. And I think at a younger age, you don't understand how these things are. I certainly did not. But this is why we see so many agents arrested for rape today, assault. And there's currently an assistant chief, Gus Zamora, who Carla Provost, the chief, allowed to resign and get his pension after it was found, after he was charged with kidnapping and raping a junior female agent. So, I mean, I give kudos to this woman who's come out, but it's rare. It's very rare for any of us to come out and say anything. If this is what they're doing to fellow female agents, and this is also the reason why the Border Patrol only has 5% female. It's not because it's really rough and tough. Then the question becomes, what are they doing to the migrants? Don't have any protection, the ability to speak out. That's kind of what my goal is. I don't expect any justice for my situation. I'm not trying to litigate it after all these years. I don't mention my assaulter's name because I can't prove it all these years later. It's not fair to him, but this is my story. And I'm hoping that other women will come forward. And I'm hoping that people start believing uh, migrants when they say that this is happening to them. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It's extremely powerful. The goal always has to be to stop things from happening in the future. What were some things that you saw happen? You know, when I first got in, my training officers, which they referred to at the time as journeymen, most of them were were pretty good in that they felt that, you know, we need to teach respect the migrants. And you certainly saw a change even in the time that I was there from before the first wall went up to after, and this is during the Clinton administration. Then it became like, we just don't believe anything that anybody ever says. They're coming here to try and take our jobs, get on our welfare system, which doesn't make any sense. Us or them kind of mentality. I remember one time I saw an agent in the processing center. He brought in a, a female migrant and pushing her, you know, shoving her by her shoulders. And then he shoved her into a wall, punched her in the face. And and I, I went to the field operations supervisor and I 
said, hey, agent so-and-so just punched this woman and shoved her down a hallway for no reason. I don't, I had never seen somebody outright do that to somebody that wasn't doing anything. My supervisor told me ratting like that was going to get me killed. My last year, I was a senior intelligence officer at San Diego Sector. The boss of Campo Station, my station, was accused by DEA agents that I had worked with previously of being the one organizing the smuggling of narcotics into San Diego. I'd seen other agents try and report this. So when we went down to the border, there's various roads that you can take down to the border. And he would say, during shift change, you can no longer take these certain roads. I want you to take this one road and I want you to say over the radio where your location is under the guise of saying, we're trying to let the next shift know that you're coming out so they can hurry up and get back in. That was just kind of ridiculous. Plus it told everybody our locations. There's a group of us going, mm-hmm. And, and so we we would go down those roads that he told us not to go down. And every time there's this big van load full of drugs coming up. He heard I was out there because he has lookouts and I wasn't in uniform. So they reported me and all of a sudden the sheriff show up. So they're listening to our radio channel, which is kind of odd back then at least. And then border patrol shows up and everybody's okay because they see my badge and my gun under my plain clothes. But then all of a sudden I get called to the station, to Campo station. And the boss just corners me and tells me, you know, I know what you're doing. And I know that you know what I'm doing. And if you keep it up, we'll make sure that you sit at a either at a desk the rest of your life or will end your career. So I went back to sector headquarters to my boss at Intel and was telling him and he said, I think you misunderstood, which told me that he had gotten a call already. From- so they were all in on it. It was this systemic thing. Or- it's not like, I don't think that my boss at sector was in on the smuggling of drugs. They would rather cover things up than actually out people and say, this agent is corrupt and we don't tolerate this and we're not going to tolerate this. You know, when you see agents being arrested for crimes, whether it's drugs or rape or, or murder or something, it's always an outside agency doing the arrest. The popular move on the border patrol is they shut you up by promoting you up. And so they offered me a supervisory position at sector headquarters. And I said, no, this is the corruption I'm talking about. This is not who I am. I'm not your girl. Before I even got home, they called me and said, you have to do a midnight shift in Campo. Absurd. I was a senior patrol agent at the time, an intelligence agent at Sector. I don't work at the station in uniform. You know, it's an order and I have to follow it. So I suited up and and went out there. And then they put me on a stationary position like 20 yards off of the fence in the drug zone with a scope truck, which is a night vision truck. Just didn't make any sense. You can't even see anything from that location. It's highly dangerous to have a stationary position there that close to the fence, especially in that area. 3 a.m. automatic weapon fire comes across, hitting right next to my truck. It's hitting the rocks right next to my truck. Back in that day, we didn't shoot south into Mexico. People that lived down there and children that lived down there, all I can see is a muzzle flash poking through a hole in the fence. So it's not going to do me any good to shoot back anyhow. So I get out of there and I get far enough north that I'm safe and I'm calling for help. Nobody in my zone is answering me. Nobody at the station's answering me. Crickets at dispatch in San Diego sector. And I know they can hear me. Within five minutes, five to 10 minutes, I see headlights coming down the road and this white expedition pulls up and I have my gun out below the frame and I'm pointing it right at the door. And as soon as I saw the car, I knew who it was. It's uh. It's the boss of the station, the one smuggling the drugs. It's his his G-ride. He rolls up and he says, I heard you on the radio and you were getting shot at. Nobody came to help you. So I came out here to see if you're okay. And I've got my gun on my boss. 
fingers in the trigger. You know, it's like, it it was such a heavy moment. And I just kind of, I didn't say anything. And I'm looking at the rest of his car and I'm kind of looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. And I mean, I know what's going on. And then he just says, have you learned your lesson? So I think if they had wanted to kill me, they would have killed me. I think it was just a warning and, and, you know, obviously. Is that guy still in the department? No, he's since passed. Basically, you know, I went home that night and I told she was my girlfriend then, but she's been my wife for 19 years now. We just had our 19 year anniversary. And I said, I'm going to die out there. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't even agree with a lot of our immigration policies and what we're doing and stuff. And then I go and I try and do like good things like intelligence or narcotics tax force and so forth. And this is what I get. I've got to get out of this agency. I, you know, this is not who I am as a person. I'm not going to make a difference. I'm going to die doing this. I resigned in protest and I wrote on my resignation forms that I was resigning because the agency was corrupt and that their management was immoral and unethical and I would not be a part of it. I went to go work for my wife who owned a business sweeping floors in a shop for minimum wage. When you see things like the Facebook group that had 10,000 agents that the bosses were in on talking about Ocasio-Cortez, I think they were talking about raping her and Mm -hmm. saying all kinds of ugly things. Does it make you think that the department is the same as it was, worse, better? How do you think it's evolved over the years? Worse because of the advent of the internet and social media. So they're more able to to spread it. In my day, we had less than 5,000 agents and now they have about 20,000 agents. And they've continued this 5% female rate. And they've continued with the poor training, poor background checks. I think it's just gotten worse. But I would like to comment on that AOC meme that you're referring to. The story I told you about the game of smiles. The meme was President Trump forcing AOC to perform oral sex on him. I'm a pretty progressive guy and am obviously on the side of that there's not a crisis and that these people are just looking for better lives. But I also understand that a lot of the messaging that you're talking about has permeated our culture. And, you know, there are fairly well-meaning people. I live in Tennessee here that probably are afraid of the crisis at the border and do think that immigrants are taking their jobs. And, you know, what is your feeling about what a humane policy at the border that also respects our nation's security should and would look like? Well, I, you know, I would first say that I don't support open borders. We do need some sort of form of law enforcement on our borders because a lot of narcotics come through there, counterfeit goods that come through and people need rescuing and so forth. What we're seeing now, I always go to the numbers statistically. Like I said, we had less than 5,000 agents in 95 and 96, and we averaged 1.5 million apprehensions. They have four times as many agents, but yet they don't even reach the numbers that we had back then. The majority of people coming here are seeking asylum. And that's because of our trade policies. It's because of climate change. It's because we prop up dictators in their countries. There's all sorts of issues that are going on that are causing people to come here. The fact is the majority of people who apply for asylum don't get asylum. The border patrol and these anti-immigrant hate groups make it sound like you just come here and say, oh, I was raped and they let you in. And and the fact is, is you have to have proof of this. You have to have proof of torture or or rape, political retaliation, and so forth. It's not easy. The majority of people do not get to come here and claim asylum. We're trying to deal with a humanitarian issue that's going to continue and get worse with a law enforcement tool. So if we keep spending all this money on the Border Patrol, who has no experience in asylum, I mean, as an agent, when somebody came to me and said, I need to claim asylum, my job as an agent is to fill out 
and send them over to the asylum side. We're not spending any money on asylum officers. Instead, we're giving Border Patrol agents a two-week crash course in being an asylum officer, a travesty of justice because there is a lot of education and training that has to go into becoming an asylum officer. And we're doing that just so that they can deny them their credible fear hearings and so forth. So it's just, it's a rigged system, racist base to keep people out of the country. We're going to continue seeing this and we're going to continue having children die in custody. We're going to continue having women being raped. We're going to continue all these abuses if we don't start seeing that we need to treat our borders as we treat other communities in the United States, that it's a community, it needs governance. Just because it's a border community doesn't mean it needs enforcement. I mean, by saying that, you're kind of saying that the whole community is criminal. And we just need to change the rhetoric. We need to understand that we can have safe borders. We do our due diligence. We check everybody. We make sure that they're okay. But when they come to this country, and while we're trying to decide if they should be here or not, we also try and help them assimilate and educate their children and stuff. What we're doing now by separating families and having children be adopted out to U.S. families, all the inhumane things that we're doing is going to create a more unsafe environment in this world for the United States. How do you feel about a wall? I saw the border before the first wall went up under the Clinton administration and I saw it afterwards. Walls do not do anything other than flood areas. They destroy property, killing more migrants. We saw there are tens of thousands of migrants who have died because they've been forced, instead of being able to claim asylum at the ports of entry, forced out to the dangerous terrain. Now they can dig under those walls. They can cut through them as we've just found out with this new Trump wall, which is the third wall. That's the third wall. We have three walls down here. It's ridiculous. And it has never once stopped anything. I know the border patrol says that Operation Gatekeeper's first wall dropped migration, illegal migration as they call it, by 75%. But the truth is immigration dropped because of NAFTA And because there was more employment in Mexico and people didn't need to come here to find jobs. If the first wall dropped migration by 75%, why do you have four times as many border patrol agents? It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense because they're full of crap. In theory, you can see why it plays on the heartstrings of the people who feel this way. But in practice, it just seems so absurd, especially when most of the drugs are coming through ports of entry and you know there are things called planes and there are things called mm-hmm. boats and people will kind of overstay their visas anyway it just it's so flawed the logic yeah and, the majority you know, of people in the united states who are undocumented came here legally and overstayed their visas there's never been any proof that they've ever stopped a terrorist crossing the southern border when we look at 9-11 those individuals they came to the united states legally with a student visa It has nothing to do with the southern border. Hey, it's a complicated subject. And they also know that fear and racism is a very powerful force. Do you think Stephen Miller should be fired and we need to get rid of that guy? I do. And I I mean, I understand that he'll just be replaced with some other racist person. But I think it's, it's the principle. It's important to call these things out. It's important to make demands. It's important to have our voices heard of what we expect of our administration. But southernborders.org is a group that I work with, Southern Border Community Coalition, a group of 60 different 
border groups. We have to have answers. We have to have good answers. And what the Democrats have done is they've just kind of been like ignoring the border. And our point is to say, this is what we want. These are the policies we want to see while we maintain security for not only our country, we maintain maintain security for the citizens who live down here on the border and that we treat immigrants humanely and, and compassionately while maintaining our security. We stop militarizing the border down here. I mean, it looks like a war zone down here. It's just insane. The amount of gear that border patrol agents carry on a daily basis with these Black Hawk helicopters and all this other stuff, when the majority of people they, they encounter are not violent, are not carrying any weapons. I mean, I obviously, I believe they should defend themselves and I don't want any border patrol agents to die, but I don't want any migrants to die either. And I don't want any children that because they're brown get stopped by the border patrol and harassed down here. It really tests our ideals as a country. My family, my grandparents survived the Holocaust and came over here when my mother was three. And if this guy had been in office, they probably wouldn't have gotten in. Oh, yeah. You know, we've, we took zero refugees into mm -hmm. this country in the month of October for the first time since we started tracking such things. It's very clear that Stephen Miller's white nationalist policies, which are Trump's white nationalist policies, have taken hold and have really colored the way that this country behaves. And, you know, at a certain point, we got to wonder, are we still the good guys? And I'm hoping that we can show that we are the people like yourself speaking out and by winning in 2020. So, uh, yeah, you know, definitely. we just, we just got to keep fighting the fight. Absolutely. Thanks, Jen. I really appreciate it. Okay. Tennessee. Tennessee. Tennessee.